0: Hey, everybody. All right, I'm Blake Ray. And this. Okay. Hey, Duke, how you doing?
1: And I'm Duke Ralston, the Reaper's Digest. <laughs> <laughs> how about you?
0: I'm good, brother. I'm good. Drinking a beer, reading scary stories.
1: Me too, my friend. What kind of beer are you drinking now Blake?
0: I got a uh, classic city lager. Let's see. Hold it up. To the oh, final. yeah. Label out, always. <laughs> okay. Brewed in Athens, Georgia, my uh, hometown for a long time. Until I moved to Marietta. <laughs> <laughs> hey she's pretty you know <laughs> Yeah,
1: i understand i understand i actually uh worked a job in athens one time when i worked as uh, for an environmental firm i drove an 18-wheeler there uh, uh onto a navy base and converted about 20 sailors to christianity in a heartbeat i am <laughs> drinking truck stop honey uh it's a honey brown ale uh, brewed in Gadsden, Alabama. Awesome. How is it? It's wonderful. It's a uh, like brown ales anyway, but I like to drink brown ales when I've got to do something where I need to be conscious. Um, you know, my my normal, my normal drink of choice is an IPA or a stout, and IPAs would rock your world, and stouts can be pretty. Can be pretty strong too. Um, A a honey brown ale, I can drink two or three of those and work and talk and be just fine, you know. So that's Mm -hmm. why I chose it. And this one is really good. It's um, it's got a little bit of a sweet taste, of course. It's a honey brown ale, and I actually use this when I started using this to cook with because it goes really well with beef. So, like, I make a pot roast or shepherd's pie. This is what I cook it in.
0: Really? So, cooking tips from Duke.
1: Cooking tips from Duke. Yeah.
0: I find a, I like a lager in with a,
1: uh-huh.
0: in with Mexican food. Oh yes, yes. Cook the stuffing with a cinnamon, a lager, and a little bit of lime. Uh huh. That's, That's good, good stuff.
1: Good. I love loggers. I mostly drink lagers in the summertime, but I like oh, a yeah. ice cold lager when it's nice and hot outside. You know, good
0: stuff. Lawn mower beer. A
1: lot more beer. That's exactly right.
0: All right. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about H.P.
1: Lovecraft and the Call of Cthulhu.
0: Probably his uh, best-known work, right? Yes. I mean, right. no argument.
1: Founda- There's an argument that because it's kind of foundational to the Lovecraft mythos. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. it's where the mythology is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean it's called, you know, colloquially the Cthulhu Mythos. Yes. So yeah. It absolutely starts here. And this is where you get here.
1: It starts here and then you get you get a little bit more in the Necronomicon. Um there was a short story he wrote that was kind of comedic, it was intended to be kind of comedic. It was some of his other stuff but it was sort of a history of the Necronomicon and it does round out some of the, some of the notes, but this is the foundation of uh, the whole Cthulhu mythos.
0: Yeah. And this was published in, let's see, I believe it was 1926. It was written and then published in 1928. Is that correct?
1: I I think you're absolutely right on that. It was, it was written. I know it was written in 26.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it uh, actually was originally uh, rejected by Weird Tales, which is weird.
1: Uh, That is weird. Um, But, you know, if you stop and think about it, if, you know, nothing, I don't know of anything like The Call of Cthulhu that was ever published before. So that editor was taking a risk, I think, when when he agreed to publish it you know that this was kind of one of those things this was truly a weird tale
0: oh yeah it was and i think i said this to you before when we were talking about lovecraft it went from it was a jump from you -hmm. know what if there was a spooky skeleton to what if there is no god and the real god hates you yes yes which is yeah. a much more fundamentally frightening idea, you know? Absolutely. What if everything Absolutely. you know is wrong? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. He even says one of the things I outlined that, that interested me, he, he talked a lot about the theosophist. And he, the, line, the theosophists have guessed at the awesome grandeur of the cosmic cycle wherein our world and human race form transient incidents. They've hinted at strange survivals. In terms which would freeze the blood, if not masked by bland optimism. And so the Theosophist had this kind of uh, optimistic outlook. I mean, it's totally, uh, totally a cult practice and it was different from the mainstream, religions, but it was very important in the 20s. And he's saying these guys, yeah, they kind of know what they're talking about, but it's way darker than they realize. Yeah.
0: I mean the the first thing he says, right? The beginning. Uh-huh.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, when you get into cause this is uh I guess we should do a little bit of a summary, right?
1: Yeah, let's uh let's let's do that. That's a good idea. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So basically, uh and then I'll get back to the point I was about to make because okay. that was gonna take a minute. Um Okay. And as we go along, you'll get used to, oh, no, he's ramping up. Um, But. (laughs) I I do (laughs) think. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) There's two of them. But um, (laughs) it's presented as a manuscript found among the papers of the late Francis Whelan Thurston of Boston, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's a manuscript in three parts. The first part is um the first part is about Francis Whalen Thurston and how he starts looking into the papers of his late great uncle, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So in these papers are all these clippings and stories of the Cthulhu cult. You know, mm-hmm. but mostly they're centered around a a, uh, a small sculpture, which he describes as being equal parts dragon, cuttlefish, human. You know, it's uh, the image we've all come to know and love, you know, the cuttlefish head, mm-hmm. the you know big mm-hmm. wings, the big claws, right? right. And how the sculptor, uh, Wilcox goes insane, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: The second part, you know, and we're basically following someone on their so descent awesome. into madness.
1: Yes. Would you agree? I agree. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So the second part is the tale of Inspector Legrasse. That's about a uh, Louisiana, uh, what is he? He's a. Uh,
1: He's an inspector police in officer. New Orleans. Yeah
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. I was wondering if he was a sheriff, but he's a police officer. He's a
1: police know.
0: officer, yeah. Police inspector. Mm-hmm. And he uh, breaks up a cult meeting, which is uh, suspected to be voodoo, but is uh, revealed to be something much, much darker involving human sacrifice right. and a an idol of unknown... Origin, which matches the base, mm-hmm. the bass relief, the uh, little clay right. piece, and then the final piece, you know, entitled "The Madness from the Sea," is a story of uh, Gustav Johansson, a Norwegian sailor, who, whose uh, crew overtakes a group of. Uh, uh, let's call them uh, cultists. You know they're they're like kind of crazed. Yeah. Craze. But, yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Cultists.
0: Uh, it's a lot a uh, lot more generous than the phrasing that Lovecraft used, but um, yeah, he overtakes them. They kill them. Then they mm-hmm. follow their trajectory, only to find themselves face to face with the great Cthulhu. You know. Right. Right. N- Now, what I think is interesting here is that there is something so nihilistic about the story. Yes. You know, you were saying that the theosophists were basically optimistic, right? Right. They're
1: basically optimistic. Um and there's a lot we can talk about with theosophy. We'll come back to that in a moment. But um, it is a religion that is, uh, you know, it, it it is a revealed religion, and it's profoundly influenced by Eastern philosophy and reincarnation. And one of the things that Ma- Madame uh talks about is um, these cities that were lost great cataclysms and go below the sea like lemuria and atlantis and they have real knowledge about these places and root races that that established each one and but it's a very you know it's a very optimistic she's when she was alive she was making converts in new york and london i mean it's not it's not an apocalyptic cult or anything like that no and Doomsday um, cults don't last. Right. They don't. Yeah, they, that's right. They kind of have an end date on them. <laughs> yeah. Theosophy yeah. theosophy uh, lasted a long time and was very potent, potent in the 1920s, and it was probably at its height in the 1920s, and it was all the rage in New York, um, and it was all the rage in Berlin which is where Hitler and the Nazis picked up on it. And, you know, when you watch Indiana Jones and the Nazis are going all over the world, hunting these artifacts that really happened. And oh, yeah. they were attempting to impart to, to prove some of the things that Vovatsky talked about with archeology. span So, after World War II and its association with Nazis was kind of the death knell for theosophy. I mean, it still exists. There's still people that follow it, but it's nothing like it was in the twenties. And I think, uh, I think Lovecraft looked at this and said, and Lovecraft for everything. This was a dark dude. Okay. But he looked at that and he said, these guys, number one, he kind of poo-poos their revealed knowledge. He says they're guessing and everything in theosophy sort of depended on Madame Bovatsky and others receiving revealed knowledge from the gods. And uh, he pooped that right out of the gate. He says they're guessing at it. He says they sort of guessed correct, but it's far worse than anything they think. And I think that's really, that's really kind of a, a neat way to begin a mythos.
0: Yeah. Well, um, if you look at the horror and clay, the first part of this three-part, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: He says, and I'm quoting directly here:
1: uh-huh. "The most
0: merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its mm-hmm. com- contents.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far." I mean
1: that's yeah that's <laughs> that is
0: that's a, that's a heck of a stuff. quote yeah hmm? yeah it's quite the opening to a mythos too
1: yeah it's that's, that's a heck of a quote and he he uh builds on that and and you know I and this is something that that plays in my mind because I do believe I do believe that writers and musicians, I believe that artists tap into something. And Lovecraft and Robert Howard, Robert E. Howard, who wrote it at the same time, they tap into a darkness that I think, you know, they're trapped between, that time that they wrote in is trapped between World War I and World War II. They're trapped between two great evils. And a lot of times in this country, we don't think a whole lot about world war I world war one, because our involvement was fairly limited. It's over quickly for us. Um, but world war one was far worse than world war two was. So, um, and, and, and Lovecraft would have been in touch for that. As a matter of fact, he volunteered for service, but was denied. Um,
0: why was he denied? So,
1: um, I didn't get the exact reason. I think uh, his aunts basically got him deferred. They didn't want him going, and I—I I don't. I'm not a hundred percent certain about that. I just read one that quote. Sounds- they never gave a real, good, yeah. They never gave a real good explanation. They never give it. anything that was ironclad. I hinted. At, that his aunt—he was the only male relative. His aunts got him out of the service against his wish. Um, he did, interestingly enough. Right, um, he believed that World War One was a waste because he did not believe that the uh, the ang- te- the Teutonic Anglo Anglos. Should be warring with Teutonic Germans and Scandinavians. He thought they should be working together um, to face the the people of Asia and the people, uh, the the Mongolian Central Europeans, what he called Mongolian Central Europeans. Uh, it was a very race-driven view of the world. And you know, as someone who's born in the South, we tend to think we see we see race in terms of black and white. That's 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 a southern thing, uh particularly in the rural south. But Lovecraft was uh you know, he was he was into Anglo American. If you weren't English, um it was a problem. I read some of the things he wrote about the Irish that were just horrible. And we don't think about the Irish as being a separate race, but he did. So, oh, yeah. and we have to we have to remember at this time period the the, the British Empire was the most powerful empire on the planet, and, or at least it was billed as the most powerful empire on the planet. And the United States was a close second. So he was definitely uh, definitely into the the, the Anglo American centric view of the world.
0: So. And I mean, that's always the elephant in the room when you're talking about Lovecraft. Mhm. Um yeah. the dude was xenophobic. Yes, sexist. Uh yes. racist. Yes. I'm going to go ahead and say probably homophobic, but you know, I don't know if he ever weighed uh, I, in. I'm going to guess I, he I probably
1: don't. was. <laughs> I would I would guess that he probably was as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um uh, but he you know, uh his friend of mine said he didn't even like other white people. You know, I mean, he was, he was very much his racism extends past simple racism to uh cultural uh, centric. You know, he, he did not like the Irish. He did not like the Scots. He didn't like the Welsh. He, he was an Anglophile. And uh, I don't know how he felt about the French, but, uh, you know in i'm gonna his guess mind, he was a fan i'm gonna guess he probably wasn't either um but the, uh, the Anglo Saxons, the Germans, the Scandinavians, he considered that with the Aryan, what what Hitler called the Aryans, that was definitely I mean, he would have had a lot of um uh, he would have found a lot of common ground with Hitler.
0: So, oh, yeah. so you know that's the guy we're talking about. And um <laughs> Now let's talk about what a genius. I mean, record what
1: is. is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> well, and that's kind of the thing you have to do. And, and in my opinion, um, and we were talking about this today, you can either say Lovecraft was a horrible racist and you're right. And I'm not going to read his stuff, which I think is a terrible loss. You can say Lovecraft was a horrible racist. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use that as a historical marker, and that tells me about the time and the culture he was writing in. Or you can say you can try to defend what he's saying, which I think, I know there are people that will, but I, I, I'm not one of
0: them. No, I'm not. I, I, tend,
1: I tend to go in for let let's read Lovecraft and. Let's, let's use it as a historical marker that what Lovecraft writes tells us a lot about America in the 1920s. Oh, yeah. And so it's worth well, reading for that purpose. Famous, same with Gone with the Wind. It's, it doesn't tell you a thing about the Civil War, but it tells you about Atlanta in the 20s and 30s.
0: You know? Yeah. Um, the thing about Lovecraft, though, is he was also classist. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of this A lot of this sort of stems from what we could probably say was undiagnosed mental health issues. Yes. Yes. The dude was not well. (laughs) Like, no. And if you read his (laughs) stories, creeping madness. Yes. That is an underlying. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: I didn't mean to interrupt. There's a little bit of lag time. I don't mean to interrupt. And it's, you know, Mm -hmm. I think he was profoundly influenced by his father's madness. Mm -hmm. And uh, his father had syphilis and uh, late stage syphilis is accompanied by madness.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: But I think uh, when you read about his background, I mean, this dude was. Uh, he was publishing astronomy uh, magazines when he was in junior high school. Mm-hmm. he was editing astrology. I mean the the guy was a certified genius, but there was something there that's just not fun. and um you know he, he he's a, certified, but he never really completes high school. Yeah, no. you know, and going to college, and uh, is one of the best
0: writers I've ever read. Well, you and look at people- his... Mm-hmm. Well, you look at his work, and it's just so meticulous. There's an attention to yes. detail. Like... Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Probably one of the greatest American writers is Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, you know, and we all know what Poe wrote: weird fiction. Oh, yeah. Yes, weird fiction, weird poetry, right? Yeah. Yes, you know, and we're using the term weird fiction the way that weird tales used it, you know, as mm-hmm. a sort of blanket term for genre, you know, horror, right. sci-fi, you know, gothic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But Poe outlines in one of his reviews exactly what the weird tale should do. He was reviewing Hawthorne, who was another great writer, you know? Um, So he says about halfway through this very rambling review, where he pretty much just decides that he's going to... uh, you know, pontificate on the state of writing. He says, A skillful literary artist has constructed a tale. If wise, he has not fashioned his thoughts to accommodate his incidents. But having conceived with deliberate care a certain unique or single effect to be wrought out, he then invents such incidents. He then combines such events as it may best aid him in establishing the preconceived effect, if his very initial sentence tend not to be the outbringing of this effect, then he has failed in his first step. In the whole composition, there should be no word written, of which the tendency, direct or indirect, is not to the one pre-established design. And I think, in a way this story exemplifies that yeah yeah the very first piece of writing under the title and the name right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is found among the papers of the late Francis Whalen Thurston of Boston which gives us two things right from a literary standpoint. Mm-hmm it allows us to use the first person. Yeah. But without the removal of tension that the first person usually gives. Yes. Cuz think about it. Like usually if it's in the first person you're like, okay, well, obviously you survived to tell the story. In this case mm-hmm. he says, yeah, he didn't. He didn't make. It. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: No. No.
1: We don't know whether he died or he went star crazy, mad. But we think he probably. Di- oh, you talking about Waylon? Didn't make it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we know that. Yeah. We also know uh, why. Why did he not make it? Because he knew too much. Because he did exactly what you, as a reader, are doing. Yep. He read the notes and learned too much. So it like mm-hmm. weirdly makes the story kind of dangerous.
1: It does. I never thought about that, but yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that displacement of the tension onto the reader I think is just mm-hmm. masterful. You know, and that idea that Poe had that you have to use every moment of it to get there. Well, he did, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So. That's one of
1: the things I like about this story. It's a short story, but it's dense. You couldn't edit anything out of this. There's in that that doesn't, like you say, there's nothing in it that doesn't lead to the end
0: exactly and a story in three parts could easily you Mm -hmm. could usually you know i've worked with a lot of writers where you could go hey you know we don't need like the middle you know yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) we could do without like that whole beginning you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. but in this it all drives It's like a good rock song, you know, it's all driving towards that end. Mm -hmm.
1: That's one of the things that, that I noticed about it. And usually when you, when you have a story, I've tried to write stories that first tense, I mean, first person. And they're usually there. I can't do it. it. It usually comes out boring but this moves and it is, I mean, it moves and shakes and you never, you, there's not a minute in it that is uh, anything like Mm. porn. I think I was telling you the other day that um, I had read some story or some critique somewhere that said that he really wasn't all that good either. But, I think he very, very, uh, the, the words he uses, the amount of words, he, wording he uses, the fact that he writes this in the first tense and the scene where they come up on, um, they come up on the, the ceremony in the swamps. Mm-hmm. It almost has a beat. I mean, oh, yeah. it, it, you know, when writing action sometimes I'll sit down and I'm writing an action and John hit Hit Dwayne right between the eyes, and Dwayne fell backwards. And he got up with, you know. I, I mean, it, it. It. I have to go back and reword it because sometimes it just looks contrived, and it's kind of it's not there. But this thing where he kind of like the police come up on that ceremony, it's it's almost like poetry. I mean, it, boom, 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 and I mean, it could be moves right through the paragraph.
0: Speaking of which, have you ever read Lovecraft's poetry? I have.
1: I have.
0: He was not good at everything. (laughs) He was not good at everything. (laughs) Elliot, he was not.
1: (laughs) No. He's definitely a prose writer. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. But he's got that that sense of the way language works. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the way... Timing works Mm to hold something together. There's Mm -hmm. a moment. Let's see if I can find it in the text.
1: Okay.
0: When he's talking about coming up on the. Coming up on the. uh, There it is. He's talking about coming up on this ceremony, right? Yes. And he says, Then the men, having reached a spot where the trees were thinner, came suddenly in sight of the spectacle itself. Four of them reeled, one fainted, and two were shaken into a frantic cry, which the mad cacophony of the orgy fortunately deadened. The grass dashed swamp water on the face of the fainting man, and all stood trembling and nearly hypnotized with horror. In a natural glade of the swamps stood a grassy island of perhaps an acre's extent, clear of trees and tolerably dry. On this now leaped and twisted a more indescribable horde of human abnormality than any but a Syme or an Angola could paint. Void of clothing, this hybrid spawn were braying, bellowing, and writhing about a monstrous ring-shaped bonfire. In their center of which, revealed by occasional rifts in the curtain of flame, stood a great granite monolith, some eight feet in height. On top of which, incongruous incongruous with its diminutiveness, rested the noxious carbon statuette. From a wide circle of tin scaffolds set up in regular intervals with the flame-girt monolith as a center hung, head downward, the oddly marred bodies of the helpless squatters who had disappeared. It was inside this circle that the ring of worshippers jumped and roared, the general direction of the mass motion being from left to right an endless bacchanal between the ring of bodies and the ring of fire now tell me that's not basically a prose poem
1: thats, that's exactly exactly what i'm i'm talking about prose poem
0: yeah he was a poet, but he uh couldn't work in verse
1: it has it has a definite rhythm and a
0: beat yeah. No. Yeah, he was uh, – He, there's a moment there, right? Because he's talking mm-hmm. about maybe 10 seconds. Yes. But, you know, if you've ever been a car wreck, and I've been in a few because I'm terrible at driving. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, just really bad. Like, I shouldn't have a license, but I do, you know? Uh-huh. But there's this moment when something really bad is happening, where time slows down. And that's what he sort of captures there. Yes. Like you're taking everything in, you're watching it, and you're shocked and horrified. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think that... At
1: the same time, it moves. Go ahead. I said at the same time he captures he captures that where time is moving slowly, but it's very much the feeling of an act. it's a surreal type of everything freezing.
0: Oh yeah the the surrealism is very distinct in it. Yes. Yeah. The That's surrealism is very distinct. And you know, we were talking about World War One, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What we don't think about is how much nihilism that brought into the world. Oh, yeah. You think about uh was it Yates, right? Mm-hmm. Right after Yikes. World War One, he uh WB Yeats, he writes mm-hmm. the poem The Second Coming right? Oh, yes. Yes. And uh, and uh, you probably can't make it out, but I have it tattooed on my arm. Um, but he writes, things can, the sinner cannot hold. Mm-hmm. And it is such an outcry for his generation. Yes. You know, things fall apart, the sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy <laughs> rules the world. Mm-hmm. this is the world that we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And in general, Pulp Fiction has been an escape, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And Lovecraft forces you to face it. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Because in his world everything is evil and there, there is a fatalism because you know that the person whose point of view you're getting the story from either is going to die or they're going to go insane.
0: Absolutely. And it's already happened. There's no fixing it. No, no. You know how we talked about, you know, the first person perspective removes some of the, what would you call it, the suspense? Right? Yes. Right. Well, he goes entirely the opposite. There's no suspense mm-hmm. because we know for sure he's dead. Yeah. We know for sure. Yeah. He's insane.
1: It, you know? it, it's like the walk up to the gallows there, there, you know, you know, you know where this ends and there's no way out of the walk, you know?
0: Yeah. I don't know if I've had quite enough beers to sing you that, uh, Mama. I just killed a man, but, uh. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, Was that sticks who had the, uh, song, uh, The Renegade who had a main retrieved for a bounty? That was Duane's. Was it? Paul
1: McCartney and Wings, yes. Yeah, that's
0: a good song. We know, you know, Paul. You know, I, I I think Paul McCartney would probably appreciate more questions about Wings.
1: I think he would too. know.
0: Yeah. having <laughs>
1: look, you know, it gets a lot of questions about the Beatles, but Wings was really a, a great group, and I I came in, I started listening to adult music about the time when wings was right before wings broke up. Okay. Or right yeah. after. Yeah. And so wings was still a big deal and it was a huge group in the seventies. I mean, it was a big there deal and we wrote a lot of good music.
0: I remember I was, uh, the first music my dad turned, told me to turn the F off was, uh, Alice and Chains. So that's to let you know how, <laughs> yeah, I, how old I am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just turn that the F off, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> mind you, and I was nearly named after the lead singer of Jethro Tull. so
1: Oh well, he he's got no right to complain.
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> At least no one played the flute in Alice and Chains. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Gotta love
1: what,
0: Jethro Ah, uh, uh, you really do. You know uh, they were nominated for the first heavy metal Grammy.
1: They were. I didn't know that.
0: They won. They beat Metallica. Oh wow! Yeah, and hey, uh, they Craig weren't there to accept it because they were like, "Surely we won't beat Metallica." <laughs> yeah. So. Uh. But uh, what else do we want to say about this story? I mean, I personally, this is one of my favorites. You know, the it's cultural impact is—it's mm-hmm. out there. You know, it's
1: out Cthulhu. there in. This impacts everything from, uh, of course, there's a whole whole list of movies that fed off of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and Cthulhu. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, the, the haunted palace with Vincent Price. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: die, monster, die. Of, uh, die monster die. Die monster die. The the Blanchef it was monster. No. Yes. That's not it. I'm thinking no. about it. Uh, it is the Blancherville monster. Blanchefield monster. Yeah. Uh, but even even um, Pirates of the Caribbean and oh, Davy yeah. Jones. I mean that is a definite C- Cthulhu allusion, uh, alliteration. So, uh, I mean, it, it has, yeah, I was thinking before we went on, um, you take, you take this one little period in time, 1918 to, um, 1938, let's say, let's say 1920 to 1938. And you get these three guys that start writing in here, H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard. And, uh, Token, jro Token, mm-hmm. and they are responsible. Any type of fantasy horror book you pick up now just about is going to be have something from Lovecraft. It's going to have it's going to be written in the style of Token or it's going to be written in the style of Robert E. Howard. And uh, they really formed that type of literature for
0: uh, for a century. Almost, yeah. and you gotta think about how. Oh yeah, we'll see. Uh, this was published in twenty eight. It's twenty twenty one. Twenty eight. Yeah, twenty one. Yeah. Almost so you know, yeah, you gotta think about how much is really being done at this time. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah. Cthulhu's become a pop culture icon, right? Right. You know, I I uh, you can go get a plush toy. Yes,
1: which I don't think Lovecraft would be terribly happy with. You
0: know? No, no. <laughs> and some other time when we've got a uh, you know five or six hours to kill, we'll have to get into the whole mythos and really, yeah, really piece out who does what. Yes. Yes.
1: And one of the things that, that I knew uh, I knew from some of my other reading, but I, I kind of touched on it, L- Lovecraft actually tutored other writers. Uh, one of the names that comes up is Robert Block. Oh, um, yeah. Who
0: wrote uh, Psycho, cor- right?
1: Psycho, yes. He corresponded with uh, Robert E. Howard and Howard borrowed elements of the Cthulhu mythos for his Conan stories. So you have a lot of back and forth here so he kind of he kind of was um was a mentor for a lot of writers that were coming up in the late 20s uh, early 30s you know.
0: it becomes like this weird mimetic fake religion, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, because it's in block, it's in uh, the Conan stories, it's in mm-hmm. uh, Derelith stories, right? It just goes everywhere. Now Derelith uh, made it very Catholic, but yeah. you know he put a lot of good and evil in it. Which yeah. there's not a lot of good and evil in Cthulhu. There's like this horror of existentialism. Yes. The idea of there we, is yeah, no good or evil. Yeah. Yeah. If we can't grab on to good and evil, what do we have? Well, we have something that uh, looks down at us and says, huh? Ants. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's also that absence of good and evil. Um, it makes it when, when you're reading the story, it's hard to get your bearings and it's hard to get a purchase. And, and it's like, you know, if, if you sit down and you read a, a kind of a black and white, let's say a vampire story, let's say Dracula, you got Van Helsing, he's a good guy. You got Dracula, he's a bad guy. In the story, Van Helsing stakes Dracula, everything works out. H.P. Lovecraft, you have that, that mooring to moor on I mean it you're just totally it, you're totally floating out there in um uh on a bad acid trip is the best way I can describe it. It's like a bad acid trip
0: you know or a really good one. I don't know it depends on how much you paid for the acid, <laughs> <laughs> but certainly not a fun one <laughs> like you know. Not one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's not the yellow submarine. That's yeah, a trip. No, that's right.
1: There's something almost psychedelic about reading Lovecraft, and it's not psychedelic in a good way.
0: No. And, you know, we'll touch on that probably again and again. It's the idea of psychedelia in horror. You know, one of mm-hmm. my favorite eras of horror is the mid to late 70s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got, you know, Satan's Slave and some furs. Yes. It all gets very psychedelic. It does indeed. It does indeed. Warhol's and, uh, Frankenstein. <laughs>
1: oh,
0: somewhere. wow. Yeah,
1: that's <laughs> that, that is out real. <laughs> out yeah. Yeah.
0: So, but you well, also
1: get You kind of get a rethinking in the 70s. One of my favorite things that comes out of the late 70s in horror is uh, Salem's Lot. And Mm -hmm. Salem's Lot, it takes a very um, very old story and puts a new twist on it and modernizes it. You have kind of a vampire population that's growing exponentially in a small town in America, mm-hmm. which makes the, which breathes new life into the, it makes, it takes the old scary, the horror movies with Bill Lugosi that aren't really, and all of a sudden they're scary again when that kid's outside floating in the air, scratching on the window oh, yeah. seal, you know, oh, yeah. so that, that, well, that was a really great yeah. period.
0: Yeah, now I'm going to have nightmares.
1: <laughs> I'm glad I could tell.
0: as if the beers weren't helping (laughs) but uh, I mean and you know it's interesting we mentioned Salem's Lot because Salem's Lot has that nihilism in it it does that Lovecraft introduced to horror you know like I said before what if there was a spooky skeleton it's not nearly as scary as what if there were things beyond your control that hated you exactly Exactly. Or didn't pity you. Yeah. Because even Dracula pities his victims.
1: He pities his victims. There's a sense of honor. There's a sense of romance between him, he, and Mina. Yeah. Uh, between he and Lucy. even. There's yeah. a sense of, of love. You don't have that in Salem's Lot. In Salem's Lot, we're cattle. Oh, yeah.
0: And, and that's no a new on. idea at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very so, neat. Yeah, and you know Stephen King has been very forthcoming about his Lovecraftian influences. You know, yes, he has. Yeah, yeah. Um, Salem's Lot is, of course, short for Jerusalem's Lot, which he wrote a short story early on in his career called Jerusalem's Lot, which is about the Lovecraft mythos.
1: I did not realize that.
0: Yeah. So okay. And there's also a short story sequel to Salem's Lot.
1: Mm-hmm. That I knew. That I knew. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's really good. Yeah, I, I didn't know about the, about the original Salem's Lot that he wrote early in his career. But you can, you, the, the, the influence, I'm reading Christine right now. And it's a great story. It's, it is a great story. And it, in my opinion, it is the best season King wrote. I love Salem's <laughs> Lot, too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm going to
0: fight you. I'm going to say Carrie.
1: Oh, yeah. Carrie's good, too. Carrie's good, too. I didn't think about Carrie. Carrie's good, too. But I love, Christine, the idea that something so American as a hot rod and a teenager owning a hot rod, and it can turn into demonic possession. I mean, it, it's just it's incredible. So, yeah. yeah. It's a great book. I'm really dumb, It's a no, great book.
0: Oh. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Well, cheers, dude. Cheers, my friend. All right. It's been fun. It's been great. We'll see you all next time. Yep. On Reaper's Digest. Thanks for
1: tuning in, everybody.
0: Thank you.